0: Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets.
1: And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe.
0: I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Pranjal Mathur. Welcome to Sustainable Minds. Great to have you today, Pranjal.
2: Great to be here, Gary. Thank you very much.
0: You're very welcome. Congratulations. You just started a new gig. Yes, I did. Yes. The uh, Climate Risk and Strategy Analyst at KPMG. Thank you. Uh, At KPMG, you're responsible for several things, ranging from project delivery of various sectoral clients on climate-related topics research on climate finance and regulatory developments and relationship building across stakeholder network. Terrific. Yeah, we're gonna talk about that. You're also the youth ambassador for Unite 2030. And I love this. It's a global platform that empowers the next generation of global citizens to change the world by 2030. Yes. We need that. Unite 2030's goal is to eliminate poverty Inequity, Injustice, and Climate Change by 2030. Prior to KPMG, you were an ESG analyst at 8Versa. 8Versa is a sustainability consultancy focused on delivering strategy, planning, implementation, and compliance. March 2020, you were an ESG intern at Ernst & Young. My notes say that was a catalyst for your career. So. That's another great thing we are talk about. You have a master's of science in environmental technology from Imperial College in London. And while you were there, you were the environmental writer for the college newspaper. And you got a bachelor's of engineering in chemical and environmental engineering from, I don't know, Kutst? How do you pronounce that?
2: Unfortunately, it's not easy acronym. We just say (laughs) HKUST. I
0: could have said that.
2: (laughs) I could have said that. So welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: Yeah. So my notes tell me that something special happened, something pivotal happened while you were an intern at Ernst & Young. What was that?
2: So I guess to put into context, that time I was doing my undergraduate, as you said, in chemical engineering and full disclosure, I was a really bad one and I'd still make a really bad one. And I think that was around that time when COVID had just started sort of hitting everyone and led to lockdowns as well. I was in Singapore at that time. And. I think around that time, I really got thinking about what I'm doing in that degree. And that internship just happened to work out. It was really one in a 100 lucky situation. And I think through that experience, I really got exposed to the corporate world. I got exposed to sustainability. I got exposed to how it's not just some niche topic that activists are thinking about. It's not some esoteric idea in literature, it's actually a very rigid and at the same time flexible part of the corporate structure. And I think from there on, it became clear to me that this is what I want to do. And I think if it weren't for that internship, I would probably be a lousy engineer somewhere.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I love that EU's positioning on sustainability is reflected in its purpose statement, which is building a better working world. Because they seem to be, from all sides, trying to make a positive impact on society, the economy, and environmental through its services and operations and actions, which a lot of people aren't consistent. And it's not all aligned. I can see how you were inspired.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So here's a question I always ask, and I'm just really curious. When you were a young boy, what did you like to do?
2: I think uh, when I was a young kid, I probably just enjoyed a lot of watching sports, but not really playing the sports. So I think that was just my life. Honestly, I like watching sports. I like eating food while watching sports. Um, <laughs> honestly, I was just a very lazy kid. And I think when I got into university, I sort of lost that energy a little bit. Luckily, and I tried doing more things with my time. And yeah, I think that sort of made it a little bit better for me.
0: Exciting. So tell us about your new job. Why did you choose to go here and what inspires you about what you're doing?
2: Sure. So I think my new role is in a very unique position within KPMG UK. So it's within the team called Climate Risk and Strategy. And it's sort of like a startup within this huge organization because Climate Risk and Strategy were sort of part of different families within KPMG and they were within different services, service offerings rather. And this sort of merger between strategy and very technical climate risk assessments came about 2021 and this team's really exploded. So I recent joiner, but i'm told within the last 18 months they've gone from 15 to 130 so it's just a massive explosion and that really tells you about the demand and volume over here as well right How many people are interested in it? So it just seemed like a great place to get that exposure, to work with clients who are really at the forefront of sustainability, as well as clients who are able to reach out more in terms of their supply chain's impact. So it just seemed like a great place to learn as well as to contribute.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I'm sure it is. And the description here, it says that uh, relationship building across stakeholder network is part of your responsibility. I'm not really clear, is it relationship building with the clients or is it relationship building within KPMG?
2: Well, it's a little bit of both. So I think when you're working with clients, a lot of the times the way clients are sort of working on projects is essentially through old relationships that partners have or that associate directors have. And those relationships are incredibly valuable in terms of being able to be honest and being able to give a reasonable suggestion. Quite often what happens in the corporate world is you have clients who aren't sort of well known to the service provider. And because of that, there's a certain barrier in where you're only working for the fees. But in this case, the way KPMG has structured themselves is they're really looking to get to know the people they work with. And at the same time, internally as well, it's a huge part of the team. So climate risk and strategy gets to work with uh, the finance team, they get to work a little bit with supply chain, they get to work a little bit with the tech side of it. So within the team as well, there's a lot of cross collaboration. And I think that's one point I missed in your earlier question, which is, interdisciplinary is a key word here. It's an interdisciplinary team. It's yeah. a team that has a huge outreach. Yeah,
1: and, and actually, it's sort of a reflection of what ESG can do within a company in the sense of being a collaboration and a hub where everyone has a seat at the table from all these siloed departments. And you really get that cross-fertilization that you often don't get. I mean, we used to do annual reports 30 years ago before the internet when it was really important document for a company. And we'd work with the CEO and the CFO and maybe the top person of corporate communications, but that's it. We did not interview subject matter experts from different departments and getting everyone's input. And then I think that's sort of where there's such an opportunity for innovation when you have that, that meeting of minds and people being fed new perspectives that then change their job and how they're doing it. So it's funny when you talk about your relationship and the collaboration with KPMG, it's actually the same and reflective of what you're doing for your clients.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely bang on in terms of how our sort of internal strategy of collaborating within the teams is sort of reflected in the output as well, right? And it becomes more clear how we're coming up with that output. what I'd also just add as a quick note is I like to think that that sort of interdisciplinary side of the consulting world, or at least let's say the big four, it tends to come out through strategy consulting typically, right? Because strategy, you're looking at basically anything and everything that is the business. And I think climate strategy or climate consulting is the new strategy consulting because everything a business does, everything a business thinks about ties into climate. There's no escape actually at this point, right? Everyone has to think about it and it's good to see that. So I think it's something that we're going to get used to seeing more of. We're going to start hearing people who we never expected to hear climate from coming into Daily Dictionary.
1: Yeah, so true. It's like climate, I don't know investors, employees, potential employees, stakeholders, communities where you're doing an operating business. I mean, it's really this interest in it all and how their evaluations of companies and their potential value in the future is all tied into climate change and to other ESG issues.
0: Let me segue that way into you being a Youth Ambassador of Unite 2030. Tell us about that.
2: Sure thing, so Unite 2030 is an organization that is essentially comprised of youth changemakers. So individuals based around the world who want to contribute towards the Sustainable Development Goals 2030. So a lot of their activities are essentially aligned with SDGs. So they had held an inaugural camp 2030, which was essentially a youth consortium, if you'd like to call it, of activists around the world, or at least individuals who are making change in their communities. And it was great was it uh, really brought a wide array of talent. It brought a wide array of age groups as well. And essentially, it's a platform that allows us to voice out our concerns, voice out our opinions. And if we're actually involved in any other project, really, we can tell Unite 2030 about it. They're happy to share the information for us. They're happy to communicate ideas helped to happy to connect us with people. So while I was there for the camp last year in New York, we essentially got to present a lot of our ideas to individuals who were very closely tied in the United Nations. So that real connect was what I think I valued the most, as well as the community that was created out of it. Absolutely wonderful people and uh, really enjoyed just being date, being connected with them.
0: Do you know what the scale of this is? How many... Young people are involved no. in this. How many countries?
2: I think countries, I remember. So I think it was somewhere between 30 and 40 different countries. I hope in 2030, don't get mad at me for giving the wrong now. But it's somewhere in that ballpark. I definitely covered six continents. I remember that. And I think the number of people is definitely in the thousands. It's not something I remember off the top of my head, but it's definitely in the thousands spread across six continents. They have ambassador programs that's for young people to basically get involved in local community change-making. And then they have this network essentially, which allows you to learn mm-hmm. from each other. And then they keep the camp that I was talking about that's effectively held once a year, and that's where you go, and you have almost a hackathon type uh, experience where you're intent, you're put into an intensive environment. You need to come up with a solution, and then you present that.
0: I just find this so fascinating, and it makes me very happy to hear about these things because <laughs> it's a real sign of hope in the future, and a lot of people caring, and a lot of people wanting to be a part of the solution here. And on all the different fronts of eliminating poverty, inequity, injustice, and climate change, all really, really important issues.
1: Yeah, and with at least in the United States, how ESG has begun to be politicized in such a detrimental way, we need more organizations like this and more young people speaking out and taking action. So... That's really important. I was reading an article just yesterday, which was very, (laughs) I was surprised. It was, it really made me think a lot about a lot of things. I think it was in the Herald and it was about trends with millennials. And they went across like all the different things that they are doing or not doing that this quite extensive research showed me. I mean, that they had done was the basis of it. And they were saying things about like buying brands and being consumers and how really the numbers show that that these people are paying attention and they are being loyal to brands and companies that they think are really taking sustainability seriously as well as a number of other things that it was saying that was just so encouraging, so encouraging. Yeah, they're going to be a really important part of change and we certainly need it. (laughs) I mean, we need to get a lot more of them into uh, government positions so that we can see the changing of the guards and have people who are really, rather than looking out for their own power and status quo that they're doing the will of the people and good for the planet. It's slightly scary what is going on.
2: If I may ask you guys, actually, like, uh, what are your opinions on sort of the political angle around ESG ratings in the U.S.? You know, I guess I'm, again, sitting in the U.K., so obviously it's just articles that I'm reading, but you guys are living there and uh, experience that. So how does that sort of affect a conversation on ESG in the U.S.?
0: I think it's a complex issue. Some people that are just getting into it are kind of confused as to where to start. The SEC is coming out with guidelines in June, and that will help in part. I think the consolidation of some of the rating groups, SASB... And
1: frame, yeah, frameworks. Frameworks, SASB
0: integrated with, Yeah,
1: IFRC or something. Anyways, they're all... Consolidating, and a lot's going on. The thing about, I mean, those are the frameworks really for reporting, but also that ESG rating agencies. What I find troubling and is because they weigh different ESG issues. A company can score high with one and low with another, and unless you're really educated to know. How those different rating agencies proprietarily await their whatever, their concerns. I just wonder if they're meaningful in the end of the day. And as well as the fact that all of these things are just a piece of the puzzle, because what Gary and I are extremely interested in is more of a comprehensive picture of ESG where you're not just doing the ESG report siloed, but you're considering and wanting people to communicate with transparency. A lot more subjects that we don't necessarily think of, but for instance, their business model, their models of their product development, their strategy, the governance the overview of external environments and their performance and their outlook. And unless those things are consistent with what they're doing as far as ESG actions, I think that's more meaningful to really know if a company is greenwashing or not. I don't know. So I find the rating agencies a little bit problematic because. We work with clients and that's always something they always say, well, you can help us get our ratings up when you do our report. And it's like, well, you have to understand. I mean, some of them you don't really want. I mean, you're not gonna score. They aren't apples to apples. Yeah. And what in the UK? Do you have similar, are they similar organizations that we have in the United States? So you have MSCI and sustainability analysis. And so what other ones do you consider important?
2: Yeah. So I think we have MSCI, Sustainalytics, S&P are the sort of big ones. I think Fitch also has some really good ESG rating sometimes. But no, I think uh, going on your point about sort of ESG rating firms being problematic or rating firms being problematic at large, I think that's bang on. And I think the academia supports exactly what you're saying as well, because there's this huge divergence within ESG ratings, actually, there's often what's referred to as a rater's effect, which is essentially, if within a rating, there are 10 criteria, and for nine, they've given you a good score, the 10th, they'll just give you a good score, because they've given you a good score in the nine. And that causes artificial inflation of ESG ratings, or in some cases can even cause artificial deflation of ESG ratings. So really, finding the truth is sort of a rabbit hole almost you have to really go down deep into their methodology document and on on like page 36 of 75 you (laughs) might realize oh that makes sense i see why that's happened So I think you alluded to this as well, which is ESG ratings are not a singular data point that should be used to reflect environmental progressiveness on its own. It's a part of the puzzle. It's definitely something that's useful for increasing investor confidence. It's definitely useful for having capital flow progressively over time. But it's not the only thing on the merits of which you should be identifying risk. And I think the best example of that is when we look back at the 2000 2008 financial crisis, right? It was very easy for credit rating agencies to come out and say, it's our opinion. I mean, that was something that the CEO of one of the big firms said in Congress, in front of Congress, that it's our opinion. And they were specifically referring to opinions on essentially some debt issuances. So I think at the end of the day, it's very important to take ESG ratings with a grain of salt. It's a part of the puzzle. It's a part of identifying materiality risks, but it is not something that should be the sole point of identifying a risk.
0: Well, you just used a word that I use a lot. In our corporate branding business, I want to get into the heart and soul of a company. And not only at the leadership, which is critically important to understand there, but then the whole company and notions around purpose, real purpose. Why do they exist? What's the difference they're trying to make? What are their values? What are the behaviors, actions, mindsets associated with that? But a question, a very fundamental question I'm always very interested in is a corporate viewing this as a risk mitigation situation or a value creation opportunity? And I find that those that see it through the value creation lens, are the ones that are really going to be successful in, this in the journey. long term. Have you seen anything like this with the clients that you're working with?
2: Yeah, I think what what maybe I'm putting it in other words, but perspective of a client on materiality of, upcoming changes that are going to occur in their business environment is incredibly important. So if we look at private equity, for example, private equity are very quick in identifying that their entire portfolio is going to be affected by physical climate risk, for example. And within physical climate risk, what that effectively means is you have to either invest in retrofitting your Assets with the ability to adapt to climate change, or you completely flip the boat and you try and have as much renewables, and that sort of goes into transitional risk. At the end of the day, a firm that has the desire, sort of has the incentive to want to make that jump, it is actually a huge, huge opportunity for profit. And again, the academia is behind this. There's very little doubt on that. I think. Where the problem arises is essentially in the short term, medium term, and long term horizons. Because, yes, short term, it is a trickier battle to fight. It really comes down to how lucrative renewable energy is made by your government. It also depends on how your supply chain is catching up with climate change. And I think on a sectoral level, it's very easy to assign averages on how likely a firm is to use a certain type of fuel. But the issue is that an average is sometimes a very high standard deviation figure. It's not a truly good indicative picture of mm-hmm. what is happening in an industry. So I think perspective is very important. So you have to levelize the risk. But I think, generally speaking, clients who view a transition as an opportunity are going to be making a lot of money. And the jury's out on that one, in my opinion.
0: Yeah.
1: Hmm. And what is, if you see, I mean, the companies like we've just recently in the United States had a lot of the big oil companies who had made the commitment for net zero all of a sudden in their earnings call say that they're dialing back their investments in renewables and in basically the transition tools that you're talking about. And they want, you know, basically between the lines, they want it to stay status quo and they're going to go all in until it's over. And how do you determine or how do you hold those companies accountable when they first commit to certain things that look like they're going in the right direction, and then they make some of these reversals along the way. And talk to me about greenwashing.
2: Yeah, so I think greenwashing is fundamentally one of the biggest challenges that are going to arise within the next five to seven years because a lot of capital that has been allocated at the moment is either going to be due for payback to the investor or is going to be due for checking on a performance target. But talking about oil and gas companies in particular, I think there's a lot of what we can broadly call sustainable debt, let's say green bonds or sustainability linked loans that have been allocated to oil and gas firms. I think one of the issues is that if we're looking at a X ex ante declaration of this is the exact use of proceeds and that this is what's going to be achieved, at the moment, oil and gas firms are going to have a trickier time in being as ambitious. So, what's the combat that we've had the advent of sustainability linked loans, which is essentially that we'll tell you we will achieve a certain sustainability performance by the end of this or by the payback period of this debt, but don't worry about how we get there, which is also very prone to greenwashing. Don't get me wrong. But I think it comes down to the sectoral specifics. So for an oil and gas company that is going through a very rapid transition and for oil and gas company, we know through uh, CPD data that they're supposed to have a sharp decline in emissions in the next four years. And that sharpness of that decline is much sharper than it has been before. So we know that they will be having a sharper decline as per their commitment So I think when we're looking at greenwashing risk, we have to be careful about how oil and gas companies are using these debt instruments. If they have reason for achieving a sustainability performance target that is well suited to their ambition then yes we can say verifiably that they will be having a positive impact but a lot of times and i'll just put this in a very analogous sort of simple term that a lot of times what happens is that an oil and gas company might go for a very less ambitious sustainability move and that might be literally making an energy efficiency improvement in a building which makes it net zero by a certain year but that doesn't take into account the fossil fuels around it, right? So things like that are an important discussion to have. And I think when it comes to greenwashing risk, the party that's affected the most is the investor. And with greenwashing risk, you have to make investors comfortable enough to put their money in. Because if they aren't comfortable enough to put their money in, then none of this matters because at the end of the day, money is the way we would be able to achieve any of these targets tangibly. So I think with, long story short, with oil and gas firms, it's complicated. But I think as a consultant, as well as as an individual, we should be checking very, very carefully what's going on with oil and gas companies and we with any other sector, to be honest. So it's important to just be able to take a deep dive into data sometimes.
1: Well, I know in Europe, they always took the value of their brand on their books. And the United States, people didn't, now they do, but 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they didn't do it the same way as Europe. But it seems like now when people are taking that value and the equity of someone's brand really means something, that you're really taking a huge, much more of a gamble with your reputation and brand that actually is a financial impact when you participate in some kind of greenwashing. Although one of the reasons is because they're just so used to being able to spin things their way and that the movement of transparency and truth rather than a spin is what we're moving towards with regulation, definitely. But we've witnessed it over the years working for public companies. That's what we focus on. And we do corporate branding as well as ESG reporting. So it's a pretty serious issue.
2: It is, yeah. And I think on in terms of sort of regulatory forces that would make greenwashing reduce, I think in the EU recently created an initiative for essentially identifying the legal definition of what exactly greenwashing is. And they have a taxonomy as well, right? So that sort of helps them understand a little bit better. But I think when it comes to greenwashing, yes, regulation is important, but it has to be a behavioral change as well. It yes. has to be About identifying the facts that are pertaining to environmental impact with more sort of scrutiny. So, an example that I could give is a life cycle assessment. So, life cycle assessments are still very rare within the financial space, almost never occur. But a life cycle assessment, at least in its current form, is a pretty good indicator of what the emission lifespan across a product is going to look like. And it's not about data in availability as much there is data availability. But what's more important is just the demand for the data in the first place. And I think if there's more demand for the data, there'll be more suppliers of the data as well, more individuals and firms that will be able to identify the data sets, carry out and through artificial intelligence, machine learning, name it, be able to give that data. And if that data becomes available to investors as a very credible data point, it becomes easier to reduce greenwashing. So that's actually sort of something on the tech side of ESG, right? I think uh, in in the US, I know for a fact ESG tech is quite well developed and it's starting to get more development. But I guess on greenwashing, I do feel reg is important, but has to be behaviors as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. And we've had some recent also, I think, with regulation, I mean, the fees that they're charging, the regulatory consequences. Uh, also, unfortunately, because everything is run by money, <laughs> they also are being scared of and paying attention to a little. But I think definitely that building of credibility with investors and stakeholders and is huge because we see it even in the ESG reporting that we do, that we're always saying to people, even if you've made your goals, you have your strategy, if you aren't performing well, tell them why, but tell the truth. And you get credit, even though you didn't reach your targets. I think that's what it's really all about is tell the whole story and you're building credibility, if nothing else.
2: Yeah. Transparency is king, as many people have said. It is the Fundamental basis on which all business can and should operate. So I completely agree with that. Yeah.
1: Uh, Well, in the United States right now, with so much disinformation, it's scary.
2: It is. It is, actually. And I guess that's where, again, tech companies also do have an important role to play. So there's sort of understanding on what exactly the truth is sometimes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But that goes back to behaviors and what's at the core of your character and who you are. As a group, as an entity, as a tribe or and as a corporation.
1: Well, and again, getting back to money, meaning something to these corporations, it's their compensation packages and are they tied to ESG performance or not?
2: Yeah, that's a very good point. That is very true. You know, I suspect that a lot of the sort of Western investment world is still not Tying performance related ESG. I, I, oh, they're
1: they're going to drag yeah. their feet as long as they can.
0: <laughs> Are you involved in biodiversity?
2: Yeah, I am trying to get more involved in it. It's space that I've recently discovered and I'm trying to learn more.
0: Tell us about that.
2: Sure. So biodiversity is sometimes sort of called as the next big thing. It's also referred yes. to as Climate 2.0, the third wave, whatever you want to say. But I think biodiversity is something that conservation science has identified quite well, quite cogently in terms of data, at least. But effectively, for a financial perspective, biodiversity finance is effectively finance that is at least not harming biodiversity or creating a positive impact on biodiversity. So biodiversity over here has a very broad definition, but effectively in any financial investment, if there is a certain change being created in the environment, what we want to account for is the negative externalities being created on biological life around it. And that's obviously any kind of plant species, any other smaller species, insects, and so forth. And I think the challenge with biodiversity is it's not like carbon footprinting. You don't have a standard unit of biodiversity, at least at this point in time, you don't. Because an otter population in the southwest of England means something else than it being in northeast England. It has two completely different connotations because it ties in with the weather, it ties in with the other species around those otters. So it's a very, very complicated issue. And I think from an academic perspective, again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand, do we place a price on one otter or do we place a price on the entirety of the otter population in the UK and, and then sort of have a granular breakdown of this is what it costs in Northwest. And it sounds so inhumane saying cost of an otter, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's natural assets that natural asset classes that are going to be created as well.
0: Interesting. Fascinating.
1: I just recently started really paying attention and reading about biodiversity. And I was surprised by some of the potential consequences of losing it to both humanity and the planet. Can you speak to some of that?
2: Absolutely. So biodiversity risks are actually, I mean, if we think climate risks sort of get traumatizing, biodiversity risks are even worse because when we think about the fundamentals of our existence on this earth as well it's really biodiversity so if we something as simple as a bee population bee populations are crucial for plants to exist because that's essentially how the reproductive All system is working. yeah and yeah. if plants aren't there we aren't there no other mammal species is out there and that is a scary fact if you think about it because what if a farmland or a building that we're trying to construct somewhere is Removing bee populations, or I'm just taking with the bee example if those bee populations aggregate in reduction around many areas, that's going to lead to a plant population reduction. So the cascading effect, the domino effect that comes out of biodiversity is petrifying, honestly, and it is something that we should be taking very, very seriously. From an economic or financial angle, sort of the figures that I've seen coming out of either the World Wildlife Foundation, or I think it was the World Bank also that reported this, which is somewhere between 50 to 80% of our entire GDP, global GDP, can be tied To biodiversity, to natural assets. So it's not a joke. It's literally every single thing that we are doing is literally touching biodiversity.
1: And affecting our survival. I mean, decline in food security. I mean, just as you say, I mean, you eliminate the pollination and the plants, you eliminate certain food sources like immediately. It's scary. It's definitely scary.
2: One of the things in biodiversity is the establishment of what's called the TNFD, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. And they've come up with sort of a good framework for identifying the risks associated to biodiversity. And I had the opportunity to actually meet the head of the TNFD. And there's this one quote that he said that sort of helped me feel a bit better, which was that biodiversity is... 10 years behind climate change, but it's moving 10 times as quickly, (laughs) which in fact means that on a regulatory reporting supply chain level, because we've sort of had to work really hard in figuring out data on a climate level, we're able to translate those skills relatively easily Mm -hmm. to biodiversity. And this is across the finance sector, across FMCGs, across investor circles as well. So I guess if that helps someone out... That's a big. That's a great
1: way to look at it. What is the current discussion about climate change and why it's important for people to really understand?
2: I guess from my perspective. So I obviously involved in the corporate space, but I also volunteer. So I do get a taste of both, and I think. Climate change is still sometimes viewed as a very peripheral issue. It's still not sometimes understood in magnitude. And that's because the science is difficult to communicate. If we go around telling individuals who really haven't studied science, who really haven't really thought about these issues, that we need to limit global emissions by 1.5C, it just doesn't translate to the magnitude of what that really means, because it's not good enough as a communication. So in my opinion, communication pieces are very important as well, right? We need people in the industry, we need people in science, who can communicate those ideas very, very well. And I think one of the ways that's done is through identifying lifestyle changes on individuals. So sometimes we talk about how the West or how Asia or how Africa are going to have different lifestyles by 2030, by 2040, by 2050, all because of physical climate risk. There's some data that parts of the world near the equator are going to have 50 to 55 degrees Celsius summers. I think in Fahrenheit, that's 130-ish, give or take, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, my God. So just try and imagine that. I
1: mean... Storytelling.
2: It is absolutely petrifying and that makes a difference. That scares the individual person and then they think, okay, well... What does that mean we need to do right now? And that's when you can start going in with a little bit of science and say, Mm -hmm. okay, well, that water bottle that you're drinking from isn't helping. Maybe try doing this. And those little things do make a difference. So in the age of TikTok and Instagram, where your attention span is five to seven seconds, you really need a solid piece of information to get someone's attention.
0: But I I think, yeah, and we need to find ways to Have it be more meaningful, that it touches you, that you can feel what this information really, really means.
1: Emotions first. Yeah. yeah. Rational second. Yeah. And we always say that when we're doing any kind of assignment, that's the fact. I mean, if you don't connect with them emotionally, you're not going to move the needle.
2: Yeah. I completely agree with you on that. hundred percent.
0: Terrific. This has been great. This has been very, very enlightening. You've got a great knowledge and point of view. So let me ask you a question. So you just started this new job. You just finished school. You're into this thing. Where do you see this industry five years from now?
2: I think five years from now, I expect this industry to sort of become one of the mainstays in how our corporate world operates. But more than that, on a personal level, I think I see it sort of evolving at the same time because there's so much new information coming in every day that the way it is right now might be very different from five years later. And the only sort of sector that sounds similar to me was the IT sector. And you had that IT boom in the 2000s, where it went from zero to hundred quite literally in a matter of months. And I think that's how climate change is going at the moment. We have an economic system that's still growing, right? There's conversations on topics like degrowth and so forth. Let's see how they go. I'm very curious. I don't know a lot about that, but... We're still trying to feed people. We're still trying to give people basic medical care. And that comes at the cost of energy. So there has to be a way to work around the negative externalities of energy and still try and protect our environment, still try and have a prosperous society. But one thing's for sure, it's going to create a lot of jobs as well. So I talk to people of my age group and I tell them, look, you might think it's a very sort of esoteric thing that I'm doing a hippie thing, but not really. It's you guys are going to end up being doing something along the lines of this in a while. And, you know, it's like maybe in the late 90s, people who were working in IT software, people who are using MS Word were like, oh, wow, look at you, you're very special. <laughs> but Microsoft Word became like the mainstay in, in schools now, right? So I think you have to put it into context, but what's good is job creation. Even though we have a tough economic situation right now. Job creation in the climate space is really good. So maybe if anything, try and get a climate job.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I love the work you're doing with Unite yeah. uh, 2030. I think that's just fabulous. Yeah. And it's initiatives and activities like that I, give us hope yeah. and we'll make positive change.
1: It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you
0: for your time.
1: Thank loved, you. Loved
0: your point of view.
1: We'll stay in touch.
2: Absolutely. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Rajal, thank you thank so much. Thank you very much. Thanks.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing.
0: It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com.
1: See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.